Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. If you like our interviews, be sure to check out our online magazine, The Gradient, which has articles contributed by the sorts of people we interview. I am your guest host, Andrei Kurenkov. And in this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Anant Agarwal. Anant Agarwal is the Chief Platform Officer of 2U and founder of edX. Anant taught the first edX course on circuits and electronics from MIT, which drew 155,000 students from 162 countries. He has served as the director of CSAIL, MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, and is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT. He is a successful serial entrepreneur, having co-founded several companies, including Pilera Corporation, which created the Pile Multicore Processor, and Virtual Machine Works. So thank you so much for joining us for this interview, Anant. Thank you very much for having me, Andre. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, to start, as we always do, it's good to get some background. So I'm curious, going back, how did you get going with research in general and going into academia and, you know, teaching and all that? You know, it's uh, what life does to you, I guess. Um, I got my PhD at uh, Stanford in uh, computer science, computer architecture, uh, I completed my degree from IIT in Madras from India. And uh, as I applied for jobs, uh, I was looking for a job in uh, research and teaching. Um, my my father was a teacher and uh, always inspired by great teachers. And so I decided to uh, pursue a career in research and uh, academics and teaching. And so uh, I got uh, a position at MIT. And I've been a professor there since... Uh, 1980, late 1987, uh, you know, 35, uh, 35, 36 years. Mm. So you've been teaching for quite a while, right? You may, you may say that. <laughs> and uh, for this podcast, we focus on AI. So I guess one thing we'd like to hear about is your time at MIT CSAIL and how you got involved with that and sort of really for our listeners, the scope of CSAIL and what happens there. Um, MIT's Computer Science and AI Lab, uh, better known as CSAIL, uh, was the combination of uh, two MIT labs, the Computer Science Lab and the AI Lab. Uh, this happened uh, around 2003, and I served as the uh, initially as the Associate Director of the Computer Science and AI Lab, um, and then uh, uh, I've also served as the uh, Director of the Computer Science and AI Lab before I started edX. My own research was uh, in computer architecture, how do you build computer chips to make computations run faster? And uh, uh, in uh, 2007 through 2010, my students and I also researched how we can apply machine learning and AI to make computers run faster and more energy efficiently. Uh, and we also researched computer architectures that could make machine learning run faster. And so I was involved in both uh, computation as well as in AI. And then I, I served as the director of the Computer Science and AI Lab. It's one of the meccas of uh, computation and AI around the world uh, with a lot of uh, key foundational uh, knowledge and research happening there in topics like computation, cryptography, um, AI, natural language processing, uh, networking, and so on. Mm-hmm. 
makes sense. And I wonder in that time of the late uh, 2000s, uh, that was just on the cusp of deep learning and, you know, scaling up and all this crazy stuff we've seen happen over the past decade. So at the time, were you starting to see this trend towards needing higher compute and and scaling up really in both data and the computing capacity to actually do machine learning at a large scale? You know, uh, although, uh, you know, ChatGPT and its uh, incredible quantum improvement and capabilities that came out really into the public I over the past six to 12 months, certainly AI and machine learning has been around for a long time. Um, MIT's Computer Science and AI Lab was working on it. Many other labs around the world have been working on it for a long time. And so uh, the computation needs for AI, uh, you know, I could already see it increasing in the, uh, the middle to latter half of the uh, uh, 2000s. And so uh, we were already working on computer architectures to speed up AI computations. Um, and neural nets, frankly, have been around since the 80s. And so, uh, you know, they uh, came up in, uh, uh, you know, computer architecture as a way of uh, speeding up certain types of computations. And uh, uh, they were used in various uh, tasks like uh, speech recognition and so on. Um, and so, uh, you know, in computer architecture, uh, we've certainly used neural nets as one of the applications that uh, is important now and is important in the future. And so we continue to use that as an application. However, uh, you know, whatever we saw then uh, was then, uh, but this is now. Uh, things have increased, uh, uh, you know, tenfold to a hundredfold in terms of interest in uh, deep learning, which is really based on uh, neural nets and, uh, you know, generative technologies uh, for uh, creating different kinds of content. Definitely, yeah. But it all kind of got its start uh, around that period when, you know, large-scale neural nets started to come uh, into vogue. So it was an exciting time, I imagine. And moving on from research, uh, it was in 2012 that you co-founded edX with some other scientists from MIT. Uh, and as we said, drew more than 100,000 students. So how did that come to be? Around 2008, many key technologies came together, cloud computing, social networking, video distribution at scale, mobile computing. And the confluence of this uh, created a moment in time when many of us felt that we could take learning to the next level. Uh, and Khan Academy was, and Salman Khan, who was my student actually at MIT in the uh, 90s, uh, you know, took advantage of video distribution at scale to uh, create learning with videos. Uh, it was a big inspiration for me. And as these technologies came together uh, at MIT, um, you know, we were no strangers to uh, free online education, having launched OpenCourseWare, where people could come and learn from course materials from our courses at MIT. So we said, oh, look, we would love to take our work in OpenCourseWare to the next level and bring in real-time interactivity, bring in discussion forums, bring in certification, bring in actual grading, real-time grading of problem sets. And we said we could really advance education by bringing these things into what was much more of a static open courseware experience previously. 
So this was kind of the impetus combined with the motivation and inspiration from Sal Khan that prompted us to launch edX uh, in uh, uh, late 2011, early 2012. Harvard and MIT came together and uh, you know f- uh, invested $60 million into a nonprofit called edX. Uh, I was uh, delighted to be a founder and uh, the founding CEO of the effort. Uh, and also taught the first course with uh, several of my colleagues. You know, I remember uh, we wanted to teach a course in computer science because much more, or AI, much more popular even at that time. And so, but I couldn't get any of my colleagues to sign up because our timeline was so short. And so uh, uh, we had announced it. And so uh, we had to find someone to teach a course. And uh, since I had been part of announcing it, uh, you know, uh, I guess I got to teach the course uh, in circuits. In case you were wondering, why circuits? Uh, why was circuits the first course of edX? You know, it's not the first course that would come to mind. But even then, it drew 155,000 students from 162 countries. And so it was quite, uh, uh, quite amazing even for that time. Yeah, and I'm curious to hear how you kind of took that in having been teaching in universities with classes that are you know usually a couple hundred students maybe it sounds i I can't imagine you expected to have more than hundred thousand students for this class you know frankly um, you know, I teach many subjects at MIT, including circuits, you know, uh, computer architecture, chip design, uh, programming systems, and so on. And typically, uh, the typical MIT class, um, you know, you would have 100 to 200 students a year. And certainly that was the case in my circuits class. And so when we launched this course online, uh, you know, we expected uh, uh, at least a few hundred students. And we thought, uh, you know, maybe we'll get a few thousands. And so we were really concerned we'd get a few thousand students. Could we support them online? And then we had 10,000 students sign up in the first hour that we announced the course online with no, no marketing budget, no, no actual marketing. And the beauty of cloud computing was that with a few keystrokes, my colleagues who were managing the prototype system that we had built were able to scale the cloud resources needed to support 155,000 students. This is why I say that cloud computing was absolutely critical uh, and the technology of cloud was critical to uh, online courses and the whole MOOC, Massive Open Online Course Movement. So we launched this course online and i had been teaching in person all through. And this is the first time that I began to teach online. And, uh, you know, our initial inclination was, all right, you know, I'll just record I have recordings of my videos, one-hour recordings, and we'll just put them online. But uh, several of my colleagues, uh, you know, educated me on, oh, no, 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 uh, we really have to make the video short. We have to bring in the latest in uh, research and learning science, like active learning, where we want to combine short videos with interactive exercises. We want to make it more peer-based with social interaction. And so... You know, before I knew it, from what I thought was, I'll just record, use my recordings from the past, became a huge project where, where you know, I, I would have my day job as the director of the computer science and AI lab, and I would come home at night, and at midnight, uh, you know, I, I would keep a beer next to me, and I would be rec- hammering out recording short videos for circuits, and so uh, almost like leading two lives. Mm. 
And, and my colleagues were a huge help. Um, uh, Professor Sussman created uh, a lot of the uh, assignments and homeworks. Uh, uh, Pyotr Mitros, uh, the research scientist working with me, did a lot of the work in the pedagogy in the platform, also created some of the tutorials. Uh, Chris Terman and uh, Jacob White were instrumental in creating an online lab, which was amazing. It's a gamified virtual lab that enables learners to come and do circuits with real music and and uh, and looking at waveforms of signals was, was a pretty amazing lab even for that time. Yeah, and I can remember even back then I got into MOOCs myself. I was still an undergrad and the first class of machine learning I took was one of these massively online courses. So, uh, you know, I was a big fan and I'm still a big fan. And uh, edX was one of the foundational efforts. And I think jumping to the present, right, early on, it was all this, you know, really experimental approaches. And now it's premature. It's been around for more than a decade. And we can get into what's going on now. And specifically related to AI, there are a couple of initiatives that I'd love you to describe to our listeners with respect to AI. You know, Andre, I do want to point out that... Uh... Uh, although right now there's a lot of interest and excitement around AI, we've been experimenting with AI on the edX platform since the day we launched. In fact, in uh, uh, 2012, uh, we launched a uh, an essay grader using AI, and we open sourced that technology. And uh, you know, it appeared in the front page of the New York Times. Was an article by John Markov about uh, edX launching an AI based essay grader. So if you Google edX, AI, essay grader, and New York Times, uh, the article will pop up. And so there's a lot of controversy at that time where I was, I got calls from faculty and other places saying, you know, uh, Anand, you know, you're messing with God here, you know, and, wow. and, uh, and, and, and there are other, other universities and and uh, people saying, you know, hey, you know, this will displace professors. And how can you launch a grader? Um, you know, a computation and AI can never grade essays. Only humans can. And, mm-hmm. and we built it. And, and studies showed with tests that we ran with uh, uh, professors in philosophy at UT Austin showed that the grading was similar in quality and grades to uh, the grades given by several real-time live teaching assistants at UT Austin. So. So the, even then, that we, we could do things like this, and so, uh, but a lot of controversy uh, today. Of course, AI technology has taken a quantum jump with uh, ChatGPT 3.5 and ChatGPT 4.0, and it'll continue advancing. And so, uh, that it's qualitatively different and and much better. And so, we are really excited to uh, continue our work and bring to the market several new products in uh, in AI. Yeah, and uh, I think our listeners definitely have heard of ChatGPT probably and maybe have played with it. And that's one of the major initiatives. edX is one of two edtech companies that are in OpenAI's first wave of ChatGPT plugins. So what what is the ChatGPT component going to be in edX and how is it going to enrich people's ability to learn on the platform? So we launched two classes of AI tools for our learners and faculty. Mm-hmm. One is a ChatGPT plugin, where um, we were one of the first plugins uh, within the first, uh, uh, you know, three dozen plugins released by ChatGPT. 
so where users can go and download uh, the edX ChatGPT plugin, and then when they use ChatGPT, uh, when ChatGPT needs to reach out for more specific information uh, in education, it will reach to edX and use edX information to show learners uh, the right courses or uh, the right information. Uh, so that's the plugin. I'm really excited about the launch of the edX plugin. The second class of uh, tools we launched is called Expert. It's not one tool, but it's a class of tools where, depending on what the learner is doing on our platform, there are many ways in which AI can help uh, a learner, or a faculty for that matter. When a learner is on our website and they're exploring, uh, looking for courses or looking for learning pathways or looking for help on our site, um, an expert Explorer can help learners find tools better. We will be launching that um, imminently. Uh, Inside Courses, an expert tutor uh, can help uh, teach learners and serve as a tutor and a discussion for a moderator for the learner. Uh, we've also launched uh, expert summaries. Uh, if you go into our circuits course, for example, uh, out of MIT, um, you can click on a button that says expert summary and you'll get an instant summary of a uh, video or a uh, or a lesson, and this uses ChatGPT, where uh, we send the video to ChatGPT, and ChatGPT then provides a summary that can be shown to um, learners. It's pretty amazing, where you can tweak ChatGPT to provide summaries at you know uh, at a high school level or at a college level, or for an expert, and so it is very interesting where. There's a new field of engineering emerging called prompt engineering, where depending on what you ask for, you get different kinds of answers. And so ChatGPT can serve as a helper to us who are building tools, but then prompt engineering helps us moderate ChatGPT's answer. And so one of the things we've also done is, in addition to the expert tools and the plugin, we've also launched a number of courses on edX as a MOOC that you can take for free. We've launched courses on plugin engineering, launched courses on ChatGPT. Uh, we've also launched a master's degree for $10,000 from UT Austin in AI and machine learning. Oh, yeah. So uh, for anyone who wants to learn machine learning, who's listening to this, edX is probably a thing worth checking out, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, I'd like to hear as someone who has been teaching for several decades and has gone through, you know, this technological change of scaling up with MOOCs and having cloud technology and now having, you know, this very powerful form of AI. Um, how have you been thinking about it as all this deep learning has been emerging, as you've been introducing these tools? You know, what's been your general reaction and, and feelings about the AI component of teaching? You know, Andre, where do I start? Um, you know, as I look at AI and the progressions of AI, I'm in equal parts petrified at times and exhilarated at times. And uh, the answer is probably in the middle where there is cause for concern, but there is also a lot of source of a lot of sources of optimism uh, where we can change people's lives for the better. The, the way I, where I land eventually is that a chat GPT, AI in its current form, deep learning, generative AI is a technology. And as with all technologies, it is up to us to use it in a way that 
use it in a way that can unleash its power for good. You know, Shakespeare used to say, look, there's nothing good or bad. Only think it, make it itself. So, you know, a technology is not good or bad. It is. It's a technology. It's how you use it that matters. And so, uh, you know, David Otter, David Otter uh, who's uh, a very well-regarded economist at MIT, uh, you know, he said, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a small discussion we were having with him at Seasail, uh, in fact, uh, last week, uh, he said, ask not what AI can do for you. Ask what you can do with AI. And this relates to exactly my thinking, which is that it is up to us to determine how we use that AI. And so with things like expert and tutor and, and other technologies, I believe that we should be focused on using AI and building new technologies that use AI to help professors, to help learners. And so I believe that is what is very important to do. And frankly, we will write our own future. And so it is really critical for us as uh, engineers and AI specialists and, and educators to begin developing the tools and technologies to make AI help learners as well as faculty in a way that was never possible before. It is up to us. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I imagine that especially with this technological platform of edX and, and teaching at a massive scale, at some point you can't, as a professor, talk to all your students. So uh, I could see teachers certainly appreciating the help. And maybe we can talk a little bit from you know your perspective. How would this impact students on the platform? You know, would in what way would it help their learning journey? And what do you expect as far as outcomes in people being able to learn on the platform? I'll give you I'll give you a simple example, Andre. Um, and the context for this is uh, you know the fourth industrial revolution is about mass personalization. What does it mean? It means that the revolution that we are in right now is about scale, mass, and personalization, where we should be able to, even at scale, can be personalized individually. Now, when, when, we, when MOOCs came out, and edX was one of the uh, initial players in the space, came out uh, 12 years ago, uh, we, we achieved scale. Uh, today, we have uh, 49 million uh, registered learners on edX, taking everything from free courses to uh, complete uh, boot camps and, and uh, you know, over 200 degrees that, uh, uh, you know, we have on the platform, including degrees in AI and machine learning. The key, the key with all of this is, you know, it clearly achieves scale. Now, the question is, we did achieve some amount of personalization as well, where learners could pause videos, they could ask each other questions. We also brought human grading uh, into it. Uh, they could Each assignment was computer graded. So there was some personalization. But what we can do now with AI is we, we can take personalization to the next level and truly, truly reach the goal of the fourth industrial revolution, mass personalization, where you can imagine uh, each course to be completely customized to every learner. So it's completely adaptive. So each learner has a, their own pathways. Now, to be clear, we had courses in the past. Uh, we had a course from Harvard in uh, in uh, uh, you know global earths, which was uh, 
adaptively adaptive learning with personalization using machine learning. But today, I think we can do it much more easily at much bigger scale. And so to me, I see that is one of the biggest things where we can personalize and provide individual attention to students in a way that we couldn't do before, whether it is personalizing content for them, whether it is uh, enabling them to get help as they need. Because today, in, in our degree programs and in our uh, boot camps and so on, there are a lot of live interaction with live human beings. I see them suddenly becoming much, much better if they can all use ChatGPT to uh, enable support for the learner. So whether in our online courses we use uh, uh, expert tutor to help students learn better or to personalize learning for them, or whether we use live human beings, I see both of these improving as a result of, uh, as a result of uh, uh, generative AI. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I guess without getting any specific numbers uh, from my end, it would be kind of interesting if you have a, seen an explosion in AI interest from the learners. Is, are people sort of just getting really excited and you know, really interested in learning about machine learning these days? Absolutely. I think the interest has exploded. Uh, uh, you know, my, my colleague in marketing was telling me the other day that we've seen a 80% increase in search for, uh, uh, you know, uh, AI on the edX platform. And that was a few weeks ago. And so uh, it, it is searching for AI, AI related topics uh, has increased tremendously, which is why we launched the, uh, the $10,000 Masters in AI with uh, UT Austin, a top 10 ranked school where when we launched that program, we had 6,000 expressions of interest from students within the first week of announcing of that program. So there's a huge, huge demand wave, a tsunami of demand for all things AI, where people are looking to understand it in from different ways. So if you're a coder today, so let's take a look at some of the examples of ways in which people need to learn about AI and upskill very quickly. Uh, because this really relates to the future of work, where AI is going to transform how we work and play completely. So for someone who's a coder, who's already uh, doing coding, it's really important to learn how you can use AI and understand AI so you can apply AI in your coding work. So one of the things we did was, uh, uh, you know, we had a coding boot camp. And now what we're doing is we're adding, we launched a micro boot camp in AI and we're encouraging people who already have some background in coding um, or data science or cybersecurity uh, to take a very specialized micro boot camp in AI. Uh, it is 10 weeks long and can very quickly upskill somebody to use AI in their developmental journey uh, for developing code and so on. So that's one. If you are a pretty much in any other field, um, just like computation and data impacted every field uh, 10 years ago, where if you were a marketer, you suddenly um, had to become a digital marketer, but you had to make data-driven decisions using digital technology. And so marketers became digital marketers. Similarly now in the future, I believe marketers will need to become uh, AI-driven marketers. Uh, and so people will be using AI to find the best places to market and things like that. We are already doing that. And so no matter what field you're in, you will be applying AI to those fields, AI in healthcare, AI in business. And here you'll be looking at applications of uh, AI. 
Uh, so we've launched a number of courses in uh, topics like ChatGPT for business, ChatGPT for healthcare. And these are just a start. The third category is for business, where if you're an executive, it's really important to understand how AI will transform your business, you know, how, you know, how you should be thinking about AI as an executive. Uh, you know, certainly in the 90s and the first part of uh, this century, the first decade, the whole thing was about business transform, digital transformation of businesses. Every exec had to think of digital transformation. And if you were just coming up to speed on digital transformation of businesses, here comes AI. And so it's one thing after another. Now you have to think about how AI will transform your business. And so uh, I believe no matter what you what you do, you will have to learn about AI at one level or another uh, in order to do your job better. Yeah, I think that is becoming very clear now. And I think the positive part is because we have platforms like this, it, even if you haven't done any coding, if you haven't you know learned any technical skills per se, nowadays you can understand how to use AI and integrate it uh, with what you're doing, and uh, you know it's not as scary as it might seem. It's it's, um, it's not now, at all. It's not at all, and, and it's it's very impressive. In fact, I was as I was looking at the AI Micro Bootcamp. Um, there, um, uh, the learners actually do projects. Uh, you know, uh, written in Python, actually do projects using AI and building various AI tools and so on. So real hands-on stuff, and you can do it in 10 weeks. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, do you have any sort of things that jump to mind as far as what kind of projects or are there any examples of things you found interesting? You know, there are examples where uh, you can AI, use AI to make sense of data, where given a data set, uh, you can use AI to detect patterns in the data, for instance. Uh, but I'll give you a much simpler example. For for a lay person, um, you know, for a lay person, um, the best example that comes to mind is writing. So in the past, uh, to write something, you would first sit down and overcome writer's block. You would have a topic in mind, overcome writer's block, and then write something up. In the future, uh, writing might change, I believe, where we might use a new form of writing where uh, writer's block will be a thing of the past. You will provide some prompts to chat GPT, and maybe we'll have a prompt block, uh, a, a prompter's block replacing writer's block. But let's say you overcome prompter's block and you prompt chat GPT, it gives you a draft write-up of a letter or an essay or whatever. And then you will take it and improve it and personalize it. It is, I've found it's much, much easier to, uh, to tweak and improve uh, than it is to write something from scratch. And so for a lot of, in a lot of writing areas, uh, this may be the style of writing where you can suddenly become a super writer, where you can very quickly write a lot by using ChatGPT as a tool for writing. Yeah, and in case you're wondering, whoa, isn't this crazy? How, how could we do this? Look, we did this with the calculator. Uh, you know, in the uh, uh, early 80s, or in the late 70s, when I went to college, uh, there were no calculators in the uh, calculators came out about 75 thereabouts, uh, at least in India. And so uh, mental math was very important. We, we would all be forced to memorize tables and all of that stuff. And maybe on occasion used a slide rule, which was very painful to use. Uh, when calculators came out, suddenly the need for mental math became much lower. 
And so now everybody, you know, you know, in the in the past, few people were very good at mental math, but now with a calculator, everybody can be very quick at uh, mathematics. So calculators democratized and numerics democratized mental math. Similarly, I believe that ChatGPT and generative AI is democratizing literacy or democratizing the ability to write. And so uh, that the calculator is a really good analogy to go back and look at. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy. And and speaking of writing, actually, aside from your role as an educator, I'm interested in your perspective on these new AI technologies as an academic and as a researcher and as a scientist. How do you see it impacting your field and, and just the world of research? So, Andre, first of all, it's important to note that AI and machine learning were impacting what we did in research uh, 20 years ago. So, you know, 15 to 20 years ago, um, uh, doesn't matter what group you're in. Uh, I was working in computer architecture and, uh, you know, 15 years ago and even earlier, we were already using AI to make computers better, uh, using AI to how do we schedule the clock frequency of a chip uh, in order to uh, use less energy and, uh, you know, uh, using AI to schedule processes better. My, my, my colleague, uh, Professor uh, uh, Amara Singe at CSAIL was using machine learning and compilers to compile code better. And so uh, even as early as 15, 20 years ago, uh, researchers were already looking at applying AI in every single field. In fact, in, uh, in a paper that we wrote in 2008, uh, my students and I compared about 10 techniques for optimizing computation, machine learning, uh, neural nets, um, control theory, uh, you know, uh, a variety of techniques and, and see how they compared. Uh, today, of course, machine learning has become much better than it was in 2008, but we were comparing all these techniques to see which technique worked best. So, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're working or in research or a writer or a marketer, or a nurse, or a doctor, doesn't matter who you are. You have to be thinking about how you can use AI to make your work better. And so, uh, you know, this is not unlike computation. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, we all use computation and internet to do our jobs better, to do research better. And so, uh, so this is not new. It's the same thing all over again. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, rings very true to me. And I think there's a lot of sort of reactionary thinking that, you know, this is all going to change everything. But there are some analogies we can draw to the past with similar sort of transformations. Now, I'm sure that as you've been integrating AI into edX and kind of trying to keep up <laughs> with this very rapid advancement in technology, there's been some growing pains. Uh, so now you've had a bit of experience with having it be launched. And how do you see it progressing from now? Do you think that having all these students working with it and you know having some negative experiences, some positive experiences, do you think we can you know, even go beyond ChatGPT and, and the way that, as you say, you use it will evolve and, and get even better with time. You know, what's, uh, you know, what's amazing here, uh, Andre, is you're really striking a chord. 
where what we are discovering is that as we build the tool using OpenAI and we're about to launch it, we immediately realize that we can do so much better if we did X, Y, and Z. So our natural tendency is to say, okay, let's not release it right now. Let's let's wait another two weeks and build out those new capabilities. And then two weeks later, when we do that, we say, oh my God, we can do this other stuff. And so there's this tendency to to keep waiting because it can keep doing more and more because the technology is advancing so fast. But what is also important to know is that you want to iterate and get feedback from users. And so what we've done is that as we release these technologies to users, uh, we are we have put in mechanisms to get user feedback. So let's take expert summaries, where when a user gets a summary, we ask the user, what do you think? And have them give us feedback as to whether they like the summary or not and, and what was good about it or what was not good about it. So we are getting user feedback into this process and making clear to users and faculty and universities and companies when we are using AI and when we are not. So that this is a big experiment and we have to involve everybody. Uh, but we need to do, do this very thoughtfully. So to do this very thoughtfully and transparently, uh, you know, edX has come up with a set of core principles for responsible use of AI. And we abide by these core principles and we've shared these principles with all our partners and said, look, this, we're going to abide by these principles as we launch and use AI uh, so that they're comfortable having us use AI inside courses. And so, so some of these principles include, you know, we need to use AI for the betterment of humanity. It should help learners or faculty. We should be using AI in a way that safeguards the privacy uh, of uh, learners. We should be using AI in a way that uh, is respective of content rights and IP rights of faculty and universities. Uh, the other thing we've done is that we're also open sourcing. Uh, just like we open source the machine learning grader in 2012, we are open sourcing uh, new education technologies that we are developing. So the whole world can benefit and just not keep them uh, within one small uh, operation. So these are some of the core principles that we come up with uh, uh, so that we can be responsibly using and applying AI uh, and learning from it. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good here. Now, speaking of responsibly using AI, a lot of educators, I think, have been trying to adapt to the notion of actually how students use AI. And one of the big, you know, sort of problems or unclear points is if you can write essays with ChatGPT, you know, how do you grade that? How do you respond to that now where it used to be, you, you knew that your students wrote it. So maybe they had some uh, copying, but, you know, you ha didn't have to worry about them generating things from scratch with AI. So you've had an essay grader. Now you have students using AI to pretty much write essays. And that's still, I think, many educators are trying to figure out how to adapt to that. Uh, what is your perspective on that topic? You know, my perspective on that, Andre, is very simple, that when a tool or technology becomes widely available and everybody's using it in the workplace or everywhere else, um, it is very, very hard to control use of that technology. And you, sh and you shouldn't even be controlling use of that technology. When calculators came out, the initial knee-jerk reaction of schools and colleges was, oh, you can't use calculators in exams. Um, even today at MIT, uh, in many of our exams, 
uh, we restrict students from using certain types of calculators. We tell them, okay, you can use regular calculators, but you can't use equation solving or graphical calculators. Or So we do some kinds of restrictions at times. But in general, when things are available in the classroom, available at work, it's very hard to control usage, and, and neither should you. I believe um, they should be made available to students. And I think there'll be a new form of essay writing that will evolve, which is just like with calculators, where uh, figuring out what are the critical points you want to make? Uh, what is the outline of what you want to talk about? That becomes more important. And frankly, maybe that was more important to begin with. But the mechanics of writing and creating clear sentences that are grammatically correct and, and, and spelling is correct, maybe we let the computer or AI do that. So, uh, so that is one way of thinking about it. And so it's, it's going to be very hard to do anything else. And my, my encouragement is for schools and colleges to embrace AI and let people use AI and teach differently uh, in terms of how we use uh, uh, AI. Now that said, that said, um, you know, I was in a dinner. I was we were having dinner yesterday night in our house, and we had this debate. Uh, we had a few guests over, and we had a debate. And uh, uh, you know, my niece made a really good point. Uh, she is actually a college student at Boston University, and she actually made a really, really good point. And it hadn't struck me until then. And the point was that, one, uh, two points. One was that it is still really important for students to be able to write essays by themselves uh, because it creates a kind of creating sentence structure and so on. And she, second point she made was that maybe the only way to do it honestly is to convert our exams that are testing for those things to be verbal exams. Because if something is a verbal exam uh, and you're asking people live, uh, it is much harder to use at GPT because you know, if I'm looking at you, you have to use your memory to to, uh, to give me an answer. Uh, you're not gonna be able to Google for the answer or use chat GPT. So maybe, maybe what we will see is in those cases, where we really want to stress the style of thinking and the style of creating good sentences and so on, then maybe we have to move to a verbal, a completely verbal approach. Yeah, that's interesting. It strikes me as an academic, as someone who's gone through a PhD, one of the essential things really is this brainstorming process where you have to sort of verbally arrive at some idea, figure it out, and then only later do you start writing things down. You know, you got to come up with the seed without usually any text, or at least in my case. So in some sense, it feels like if you go to this more verbal live approach of thinking, you know, on your feet, um, maybe that's what you need in life anyway, especially in academia. You know, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, people who are communicators, you know, oftentimes tend to communicate verbally or in writing or in images. And uh, very often people are not good at all three. Uh, people are often good at one or the other. And maybe what ChatGPT will do is it will democratize uh, writing and people that can communicate in written form. But what it, it will do is now pay a much more higher premium to people that can communicate uh, you know, verbally, for example. Uh, because at least for now, until we begin to get implants um, in our brain, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to use chat GPT live while we are talking with somebody else live. <laughs> mm. 
Well, I think we've covered a lot of the points on AI for education, and maybe I'll end on a slightly more fun note, uh, just outside of your profession, of your work. I think many of us have been just playing around with ChatGPT and kind of exploring what you can use it for and, and maybe even just poking fun in it and, you know, discovering different use cases. So I'm wondering in your sort of personal life, what was your experience messing around with ChatGPT and trying it out and what have you found interesting when you were trying it? You know, it's actually a lot of fun messing around, as you said, with ChatGPT. Uh, uh, <laughs> one of the, uh, given our experience with essay grading, one of the first things I did was uh, uh, do some prompt engineering to ask ChatGPT to grade a, a, a short essay that I wrote. Uh, I gave it a brief answer, and you can do some prompt engineering to have ChatGPT grade it. And it did a pretty good job. I said, huh, that's pretty good. It can grade essays. And then I said, okay, let me see what it can do uh, about teaching. So I said, uh, uh, how do you teach How do you teach this like Anand Agarwal? Uh, and I gave it a certain question, and how do you teach it like Anand Agarwal? And then it told me how it would teach like Anand Agarwal. So, uh, so I'm having a lot of fun trying out all of these things. And, uh, and uh, you know, now you can also connect chat GPT to uh, uh, verbal uh, you know, uh, verbal responses, and 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 those can also speak in various accents and languages. So maybe we'll see very soon be able to, uh, uh, in fact, even today, have ChatGPT answer me and teach like Agarwal with my uh, with my own Indian accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Maybe uh, you will have not just an assistant, you know. Uh, tutor but at some point you might have an assistant teacher that kind of mimics your style and ultimately is just a reflection of you, how you teach and how you would like to teach your students at scale yeah, you know, maybe that's what i'll do maybe uh, I'll, I'll have have my avatar teach in my style in my uh, with my accent to the students and then i'll go off and do some gardening on the outside or something still supervising everything of course and, yeah, but, and but, making but, it personal you know, more seriously, this is actually good for students, right? Where uh, oftentimes students may not uh, just take accents. Students may not be able to understand the accent in which a professor speaks. So let's say I'm a student in uh, Southeast Asia. Maybe I don't understand an American accent. If I could use AI to, uh, to translate uh, and create an accent that is much more understandable, right there you can see how this can be uh, a, a big help to learners. And in some way, what ChatGPT uh, can do, in some ways, what ChatGPT can do is, as a teacher, it can make me a super teacher because now I can teach in many accents. And so I suddenly became not just a teacher, but a superhuman teacher. And so to me, that's the big value of AI, where I believe we can use AI to augment human beings and make us, many, many more of us, superhuman beings to do what we do better. And I think that's the kind of thing we should be training ChatGPT and AI to be doing for us. Mm, yeah, I like that uh, framing. Instead of you know saying AI will replace humanity, just think of it as all of us becoming superhumans with AI. It's it's a nice way to frame it. Indeed. Well. Uh, I think we can add on that note. That was a fascinating interview. Thank you again, Anand, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Andre. This was uh, it's such a fun topic and I had a lot of fun.